good Sunday for me. It's good to see all of you here, but, but especially my in-laws are here uh, visiting this week, so I've been on my very best behavior. <clears throat> it's been great to, to have them come and visit with us here in Steinbach again, and, uh, and so if you, if you do see them uh, hanging out with Karen in the foyer, you can make sure that you tell them how much you appreciate your pastor's wife and their daughter, and I'm sure they'd love to hear it. And we're going to jump right into our story today, Acts 16, verse 16. Well, we're going to get there eventually, but it was made known to me by somebody at a meeting this week that I always start with a joke. And then that put a lot of pressure on me this week, and I was sitting there at my screen, and I couldn't think of anything funny to say. So I'm like, that's it. No joke, no intro. We're just going to go straight into the sermon. So thanks a lot, Lucas, for giving me writer's blog. Thanks a lot. As, as we continue to work our way through the book of Acts, I do want to mention what's probably become very clear now is that this is a, it's a big book. And I knew that, but when I sat down to, to study it in greater detail and to try to map out how we could cover this book in a reasonable amount of time, I think I was surprised again at how many different stories there are. And so as, as you come here uh, weekly and as, as you join us on live stream, you'll notice that we're covering uh, huge chunks of time in between stories, and, and that's on, on purpose. And so I will do my best to give you the Coles notes of what's happening in between our, our sermon times. But the best case scenario is for all of you to just take your Bibles home with you during the week and read what happens in between or read ahead until uh, the, the next sermon. Uh, the, the, the best way to understand kind of the, the narrative of the book of Acts is by reading it on your own. So that is something that you can do to help fill in the blanks that we have here on Sunday morning. Because again, we were, we're going to skip ahead a few chapters. When we get to Acts chapter 16, we, we see that, that Paul is now on his second missionary journey. And we had just one story last week from his first missionary journey when he and his par- partner in, in mission journeys, Barnabas, were in Lystra and they, they were stoned there and, and left for dead. But after they recovered and returned back home, they go to their home church. At this point, for, for Barnabas and Paul, is Antioch in Syria. And they spend a good chunk of time there. But eventually, there was an important meeting. They still had meetings in the early church. I mean, <laughs> imagine that. And there was a Jerusalem council. That's a very important uh, piece of information to have that we can read in Acts chapter 15. And the Jerusalem council was a gathering of the early church leaders to decide how as these Gentiles converted to faith in Jesus Christ, uh, how obligated were they to, to become Jewish? What uh, level obser- of observance was necessary for them to observe the old law, the old covenant, the Jewish customs and traditions? And, and you had a, a fair disagreement with this. You had some people on one side, including the Apostle Paul, who would say there is freedom in Christ. We have left the law behind. We ought not to require much at all, if anything, And then there was another group on the other side of the aisle, often referred to as the Judaizers, and and they would even have this habit of following Paul on his missionary journeys and going into these places where Gentiles had converted to Christianity and then to try to Judaize them, to say, well, now that you believe in Jesus as the Messiah, you need to be circumcised and observe the law and all of these customs. And so then the leaders sat down and they, they sought the Lord and they prayed together And this is what they came up with. I'll just read a few verses here in way of summary of the Jerusalem council of which Paul and Barnabas were a part. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will be well. Farewell. 
So there was this consensus that, that you did not need to become Jewish in custom or religion in order to be a true follower of Jesus. And yet, there were a few things that were wise. Wise for proper worship, and wise to not put stumbling blocks in, in, in between them and their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And so those things, those proper worship, those lack of stumbling blocks, the, the sexual purity that God desires of all of his followers, those were the only requirements for those Gentile converts to Christianity. So they, they write this down in a letter, and Paul and Barnabas return to Antioch with some copies of this letter, and they bring with them some new brothers in Christ that we hear about for the first time, Judas and Silas. And Judas and Silas stayed in Antioch and Syria with Paul and Barnabas for a time, encouraging the church, and then eventually they return home to Jerusalem. But when it comes, it comes time for Paul to go on another missionary journey, we find that he needs a new partner. And I'm not sure whether I take comfort in this or whether I find it incredibly disheartening, but there has been sharp disagreement in the church from the very beginning. And this disagreement was between Paul and Barnabas. And from this point uh, previous, Paul and Barnabas had been completely inseparable. Barnabas was the one who had come and, and helped convince the apostles in Jerusalem that the Saul fellow was a legitimate convert to Christianity. He was no longer someone who was hostile. They had done all of their traveling together. He had brought him to Antioch. He had been a partner on the journey, but now they disagree over the involvement of John Mark. And if, again, you can remember back to last week, we, we, we noticed how John Mark joined Paul and Barnabas for the first third of their trip and then he went back home to Jerusalem, and I made the very poor joke that he remembered he left the oven on, which, of course, was not John Mark's reason for going back home. Really, Luke doesn't give us the reason, but whatever the reason was, Barnabas thought it was a pretty good excuse, and Paul really wasn't feeling the same way. And so Paul doesn't want John Mark to come with him because he doesn't maybe feel he's very reliable or up to the task. And so they go their separate ways. And Barnabas takes John Mark and he sails back to Cyprus where they had planted the churches on their first journey and they continue to strengthen the churches there. And Paul and takes Silas, who we had just met a little while ago, and they go on their second missionary journey. But our story takes place in Philippi. How did Paul get to Philippi? It's a good question. It requires another map and it's time for us to play another round of where in the world is the Apostle Paul? I don't know if you can tell, but I did that graphic on my own in my office this week. I know, I was pretty proud of it too. Where in the world is the Apostle Paul? It is time for us to know. So let's see, where did they start? Well, they started, where are we? Laser pointer. There we go. Antioch and Syria. This is their home base. And where before they'd gone down to Cyprus, that's where Barnabas and John Mark went, Paul and Silas go north through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches, including that's um, Paul's former home in Tarsus. And so this is close to home for them. There would already have been the gospel preached there before and, and believers and churches, and so they're going there and encouraging them. But then eventually they make their way the long way around to Lystra and Derby, right here in southern Galatia. That was our story from last week. And they're doing much the same thing. They're going along, not necessarily evangelizing so much as equipping and encouraging the churches that are there, but they still want to go and share the good news of Jesus. And their original plan is to go up to Bithynia, which is way up here. But the Spirit says no. I find that this is a fascinating a little piece of the story where, where they are trying to discern where to go next and they have their own plans, but God says, no, I don't want you to go there. So, so they obey the prompting of the Spirit. They don't go north, but they do this long trek all the way around what was called Asia at that time to this port city of Troas. And that's quite the trek. That would have been quite the, the journey, whether they were walking or whether they were riding. We don't know. 
but it was a long trip. And it was when they get to the port here that Paul receives a vision from someone, a man in Macedonia saying, come, we need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. He needs, they need help. Help is what he is asking for. And so Paul takes this as a signal that, that where God discouraged them from going to one place earlier, now he is actively encouraging them to go to Macedonia. And so they sail to uh, the, the island of Samothrace here, and then eventually all the way across to Neapolis, which is in Macedonia. And then here we see just off the coast is the city of Philippi. At Lystra and Derby, Paul and Silas pick up some extra people in their retinue. We see that they meet Timothy for the first time. Timothy becomes a protege of Paul's, becomes someone that, that he mentors. And this is where the relationship begins. And they take Timothy with them. And then right as they um, sail to Thrace, when, when Luke is writing this book, he changes from saying, they went there to we went there. And so there's a lot of evidence to say that by the time they get across to Macedonia, Luke, who's writing and recording in Acts, is actually part of their group as well. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are all in Philippi together, trying to be, to be honest and, and fair and follow this call that God had given them to be in Philippi and to be in Macedonia. So there we go. We can get rid of that very convoluted map now. What was Philippi? It was an important Roman colony named after Alexander the Great's father, Philip II. As a Roman colony, it was a larger city. It had influence in that province, in that area, and it was steeped in Roman culture. There was a very small Jewish population. Paul and Silas are very far from home. Not many other Jews are there. And so this is a Roman um, um, city. It's a Roman province. It is steeped in Roman culture. And they are looking for someone who will, who will accept and be open to the gospel. And they meet that person who is named Lydia. And she is someone who, who hears the message of Jesus, believes it and trusts in it, and then welcomes this group into her home. She hosts them. And then I, I believe what, what they would have done is they would have used her home then as this base of operations. And they would have spent some time in Philippi sharing the good news of Jesus, preaching the gospel. And that's exactly what Paul and Silas are busy doing as we get to our story that we want to look to into in greater detail in Acts 16, starting in verse 16. So you can open your Bibles to that passage. I'll be paraphrasing a lot of the story, but feel free to follow along and we'll read some specific quotes and verses as we go as well. So as Paul and Silas are going about teaching the good news of Jesus, a slave girl starts to follow them around. But this isn't just any slave girl. She is possessed by a spirit, an evil spirit, that allows her this gift of uh, divination. She can tell fortunes. Because she is a slave girl, she's owned by some slave owners, and they think this is quite the fortuitous event. They make a fortune off her ability to tell other people's fortunes. And so they are leveraging this, this spirit influence in this girl's life to make money as she tells people's futures. But now she is following Paul and Silas around, and she's, she's with them everywhere they go, and she's saying the same thing over and over, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She's shouting that over and over, and I think it's interesting. It continues a trend. Whenever we see a spirit or a demon or however it is described in Scripture come into contact with, with Jesus or an emissary of Jesus, that spirit recognizes the authority of Christ. 
that spirit will recognize the authority of the identity of who Jesus is, his power and authority, and in this way, servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. The spirit knows the truth about Jesus. And yet, even though there is this fairly truthful and positive message, I think it gets a little bit old. And when I read this story, I can't help but wonder if Paul was an only child. Maybe he didn't have any younger siblings who would toughen him up to this kind of thing. I still have a few kids, young enough, and the youngest one, he might say the same word or phrase or sound over and over and over again. And if he knows it's bugging his older brothers, well, guess what? He'll do it more and more. And then if we can just kind of put that into a van while we're driving somewhere for a long period of time, you get this idea of how it can get on your nerves. And, and that's, to me, when I read this story, that's the exact sentiment I think Paul is getting because this girl won't leave him alone. And she's like a broken record. And then finally, out of great annoyance, he turns around and does what anybody would do. He just exercises the demon. <laughs> These men, oh, sorry, let me see here. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned to the spirit and said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour, which I think we might have on here, church, the first and only recorded miracle that was done from the motivation of great annoyance. (laughs) But it happens. And and, and it is a miracle. This, This girl was possessed by a spirit who had to recognize the authority of Jesus and at the name of Jesus needed to leave that girl. And so then Paul probably says, well, thank you, Lord, and he keeps on doing his ministry. And yet, as we've seen in, in Acts, as these wonders and these miracles happen, they demand a type of response. And this response was one that was selfish and hostile. You see, these slave owners had made good money off of this girl's ability to tell fortunes. So when she lost that spirit, she lost the ability to divine the future, lost the ability to tell fortunes, and lost the ability to make the owners any money. And so, of course, they were not very pleased with that development. So the slave owners come, and, and, they, and they grab Paul and Silas, and they drag them before the magistrates, and then they accuse them of three things. They say, first of all, these guys are Jewish, which they, it's true. They were Jews. It shows that in Philippi, this was a clear minority They were not in the upper crust of of Roman society. And so it was easy to kind of vilify them as being other. That was what they started their argument with. They said not only are they here being Jewish, they're disturbing the city, which also may have been true to a sense because, of course, now a miracle has been performed and people take notice of that, and now they are dragging them here. I do think it's probably more likely that they were disturbed because they had lost their source of income. But that is what they say to the magistrates that Paul and Silas are doing. And then they also accuse them of advocating customs that Romans should not practice, which is likely just this twisting of the gospel message. Paul and Silas had been there preaching the good news of Jesus, which is at the heart very countercultural. And so while they were not doing these things for the sake of inciting a mob or, or for violating Roman practice, there was enough evidence there for the magistrates to see the side of the slave owners They'd also managed to whip up a crowd or a mob who joins in in calling for some retribution. And so the the local authorities order Paul and Silas to be beaten with rods and thrown in jail. And they must be a little bit worried about 
Perhaps they, they saw or heard the miracle. They're, they're concerned that maybe there is some, some significant supernatural influence or their ability to, to cause problems is, is so high that they don't just put them in jail. They put them in the innermost part of the prison and they shackle their feet. And now Paul and Silas went from hanging out with Lydia and sharing the good news to doing one good deed and now they're good and old-fashioned incarcerated. Nowhere to go. They are thrown in prison with very little hope of escape. And how do they respond? Well, Paul and Silas choose to respond by worshiping God. In particular, verse 25 describes it as they were praying and singing hymns to God. Praying and singing hymns. And, and I don't think this necessarily means that as they were praying, they were praying for deliverance. Because I think they were, they were praying about who God was. They were praying out his greatness and their gratitude and their thanks. And they were singing uh, not these songs of asking God to do something, but singing praises to God because of who he is. They weren't asking for release. They weren't going to God for what he had done and will do for them. I believe they were praising God in the middle of prison because God never changes. And while their circumstances had, in the blink of an eye, in one day changed from, from so much good happening to, to being incarcerated in prison, their circumstances changed greatly in one day, and God remains unchanging. He is still God. He is still holy. He is faithful. He is loving, and he is true. And that is why they can sing in prison. God never changes even when our circumstances do. And so they are praying out this truth. They are declaring God's goodness in song, and the other prisoners are still listening to them. I guess you could say they had a captive audience. Thank you. That was my favorite one. <laughs> Jokes go downhill from here. But I just love that. In this moment, again, their eyes were not on their circumstances. It was on who God is, and they didn't stop using this as an opportunity to minister and to declare the goodness of God to those around them. And yet, as they are singing, the story changes once more. A great earthquake comes out of nowhere and, and, and shakes the prison to its foundations. And it causes the doors to swing open and all of the shackles to fall off the feet of the prisoners, which would be quite an earthquake. I mean, if this was just a freak accident or a coincidence, I would like to see an earthquake that happened naturally out of nowhere that had this wonderful ability to open doors and take shackles off feet. But of course, this isn't just any old earthquake. This is another miracle, the second one that we experience in our story, the second one that Paul and Silas would have experienced in Philippi. And so now, all of a sudden, they have the ability to be free. And the jailer sees this. He obviously notices the earthquake, and he looks out and sees all the doors open, and he draws the conclusion that the prisoners must have left. And, and so he panics. And he, he worries about all the great trouble he will be in if this is true, if the prisoners are free. And he's about to fall on his sword and take his own life when Paul calls out and says, wait, we're all still here. And church, this is where I, don't, I, don't, I truly don't understand. Like, I get why Paul and Silas might stay put, knowing that something more is going on, knowing that God has something for them to do there. But how in the world did they convince all the other hardened criminals in the, in the prison in Philippi to stay? I don't know. That's a detail that you're going to have to ask someone smarter than me. But everybody is still there. And maybe there is this sense because of the worship and because of the miracle of the earthquake that everyone is cluing in that God is here and we need to see what is going to happen next. So the jailer sees that everybody is still there and he knows that Paul and Silas have done these miracles or that God has done it through Paul and Silas. He knows that they've been teaching about a way to salvation. So he comes before them, he falls down, and he asks a very 
profound and important question. He doesn't ask, how can I keep my job? How can I keep my life? How can I keep these prisoners in jail? He asks, how? Sorry, he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? I mean, that's quite a night for the jailer as well. Everything that he has believed about the world has now kind of turned on its head. And now his one priority was to, to, to do his job and to maybe even take his life. But now he knows that there is a greater salvation possible through what Paul and Silas have to say to them. And their response is equally as simple and equally as profound. He asks, he asks them, what must I do to be saved? And they said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus. And then Paul and Silas go to the jailer and, and preach the good news, the word of the Lord to him and to his entire household. And they all hear and they all respond and they all are baptized in that day. Their eternal destiny, the nature of their life. They were old creations at the beginning of the day and now they are all made new. They are saved because they believed in the Lord Jesus. This newly converted jailer then attends to the wounds of the missionaries who have just saved his eternal life. And then he, he brings them home and they share a meal. And then the next day, news comes that Paul and Silas are to be released quietly. Now the crowd has been sated. They saw them beaten. They saw them thrown in prison. Now that mob is, is appeased, well, they can just go about their business. But Paul's not going to let them off the hook that easy. Again, I, I really appreciate I know this isn't the main point, but I, I think it's a, it's a detail I enjoy about this story. It shows the very humanness of Paul. Right? He casts out a demon because he's greatly annoyed. And then now here, when he's about to walk free, he shows that mm, he can be a little bit petty too. And he says, oh, you think that I'm just going to let you release me in secret? Well, it so happens that I'm a Roman citizen. And everything you did, beating me and throwing me in prison without fair trial, without due process, that was illegal. And then they're going, oh, we didn't know that. And all of a sudden, he's making these people sweat because they could get into really deep trouble because they didn't give this Roman citizen Paul his fair trial. And so he requests that the magistrates come in person and apologize to him and then release him in person before he'll go about his way. Now, I think what's kind of interesting is that when they're in prison that evening, if you're wondering why maybe it was a bit easier for them to sing, it's because Paul knew he had this Roman citizenship in his back pocket the entire time. But I think he also had quite a bit of faith to go with it. And then they are released and they go, they have to leave the city because they don't want to make any more trouble. They'll continue on their missionary journey. And we'll pick that up when we play next week, Where in the World is the Apostle Paul? So what do we make of a story like this? I think for me, and maybe for you if you're familiar with this when you read your story or when it's taught to you in Sunday school, but the enduring image for me is of Paul and Silas singing in prison. The fact that they could, they could have undergone this beating just a few hours ago, have no real sense or assurance of being released anytime soon. They still praised God. The way that I had to say it is they were singing in the storm that they found themselves in. It didn't matter their circumstances. Remember, Paul had learned, Silas is learning now, that suffering is to be expected. It's what he experienced the first time around. It's what he told the church that they need to expect as uh, followers of Jesus Christ. But the point is this. 
God is worthy of our praise because of who he is, not what he gives us. And I wonder too, I wonder if we're even thinking about the words that we sing when we praise here on a Sunday morning. Are we praising God for just what he has done for us? Just the things that he has offered to us, which are wonderful. He offers us love and mercy and forgiveness and life and relationship. And he, we need to praise him for those things. Or do we also have our focus on praising God for who he is? Because sometimes we may not get the things that we long for or that we ask for from God. Sometimes he won't answer the prayers the way that we want him to, but he never changes. And he is always worthy of praise, no matter if he is supplying us with what we want or what we think I need or not. He alone is above our storms. He alone is unchanging in his holiness, majesty, mercy, and love. And so the question we need to ask ourselves is, are we able to follow the example of Paul and Silas and also sing in the storms of our life? There is, a, there is an image of a time kind of seared into my mind of when I saw somebody display this when it mattered the most. Uh, at the end of my first year in college, Karen and I were on a worship team and, along with some other members of Prov, and we went on a three-week tour to the East Coast. And during this tour, sparks flew between a few people on our team. And it was not me or Karen, much, as, much to my dismay. That's a story for another time. But Jamie and Jordan were in their final year at Prov, and uh, they really started to fall for each other on tour, and soon afterwards they were dating. And they were continuing to uh, be a couple and, and to be together in, in our next year at Prov. Jamie and Jordan had, had graduated, and Karen and I were back at Prov for our second year. And then uh, Jamie and Jordan had gone on a missions trip together. And they got back on one winter evening, and when they were driving home, along with Jordan's younger sister, Brittany, in the back seat, they hit black ice in a curve and a highway right by Sanford, Manitoba, hit an oncoming vehicle, and all three of them perished at that scene. Right? 21 years old, gone. Just like that, blink of an eye. And these funerals were going to happen right before Karen and I went on our tour for our second year of college. And so the tour made arrangements so that we could stop and attend these funerals before we continue to go. And I share all of this because there is the moment when I went to Jordan's funeral and, and his, his sister Brittany in which they came down the aisle in their caskets and then their parents were behind them. And there was a song playing and, and, and his mom was singing a worship song as she was following the bodies of her children down the aisle. And that made no sense to me. I was, how in the world can you praise at that moment? How is that possible? Because again, I can, I can read the Bible and see that we're supposed to, but how can you actually do it at that moment? It did not add up. It didn't make sense. And then one of the songs that we were singing as we went on our tour and led worship was, Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in that, in that bridge... It echoes the cry of Job where he says, you give and you take away, yet my heart will choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. My circumstances may be good. I may be blessed and given much. My circumstances may be poor. I'm in a storm and I don't have what I need, but my heart will choose to say and acknowledge that God never changes. How is it possible to praise God in this way? It's only possible because Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater, and I believe our story that we just went over together gives us all the proof that we need of this fact. First of all, Jesus is greater than the spiritual realm, than the things that are supernatural. Remember how the story began. Paul and Silas were, were just preaching the good news until he, he told this demon, in the name of Jesus, you have to leave this girl. And the demon needed to obey. 
because the name of Jesus is greater than any other name. I do wonder if Paul was thinking about this story that happened in Philippi when he wrote his letter to the Philippians, because we see this in Philippians 2, 9, speaking of Jesus Christ. He says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. The name that is above every name. So that in the name of Jesus, any spiritual influence needs to obey the command at the name of Jesus. It includes any spiritual adversary. Demons must obey. They know the pecking order. Satan can't assert his own authority. He has to, he has to resort to deception and lies and tricks because he too is subject to the power of the name of Jesus Christ. And if you are under spiritual attack, you are encouraged and invited to pray in the name and the superiority of Jesus because he is greater and he is worthy of praise in that moment. But it's not limited to just spiritual or supernatural things. Our story also proved to us that Jesus is greater than physical and natural things. How were Paul and Silas freed? By a prison-shaking, foundation-rattling earthquake. And Jesus, in that moment, proved his superiority and greatness over the laws of nature, just as he had in his own life and ministry when he calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee. He is greater than the things not on this earth and things on this earth, which we're reminded in the next verse in Philippians chapter 2. So that at the name of Jesus, sorry, at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. He's greater than the spiritual realm. He's greater than the physical realm. And our story also proved to us that Jesus is greater than even sin and death itself. Once they were free to go, they chose to stay and talk to the jailer who wants to know, how can I be saved? What must I do? What did they tell him? You need to believe in the Lord Jesus. And the Lord is a word that sometimes gets lost in the shuffle of our Christian vocabulary. It's a strong word that means master. It means superiority. It means to be greater and in charge. You need to acknowledge that Jesus is greater, greater than your sin, greater than your death, even greater than your own life. And that is what that final verse of this passage in Philippians reminds us, that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So believing in the Lordship of Jesus is believing that he has overcome sin and death. Jesus is greater than sin because on the cross, he was the perfect once for all sacrifice for sin. He has overcome your sin. He has forgiven your sin. He has paid any penalty needed to justify your sin. Jesus is greater than that. And then he, three days later, also showed that he is superior and greater than death by, not, by rising from the grave. By, by now even ascending to the right hand of the Father, he is the first of many who trust in him will also experience resurrection from the dead. That is the good news of Jesus. He is greater. So it is only possible to sing in the storms of life when you trust that Jesus is greater. Greater than your storm, bigger than your circumstances, spiritual, natural, even your own experience with sin, brokenness, brokenness and death possible when we know that Jesus is greater. I want to invite the worship team to come back up. We're going to sing one more song. I want to share with you one more story. I still remember, again, being at that funeral for, for Jordan and his sister Brittany and watching that mother sing in, in the greatest storm of her life. And then I think for 20 years, 
I understood that it's possible in my mind, but I don't know if it, if it translated into my heart. And then just over two years ago, when my mom had received her t- terminal diagnosis and she was at home in palliative care on her deathbed, she asked Karen to come and sing some songs with her. And then I got to go one time. And so we were leading worship, much like this, but different. And my mom was getting tired, and she couldn't always sing, but sometimes she did. And it was that time, that moment, in which that truth moved from my mind and then right down into the, the core of who I am. Like this is, it is possible. It is possible to praise Jesus even now, not because this is good, not because this feels right, but because God is who he is. Jesus is greater. He is far greater than any level of brokenness that we can experience. And so my hope for you this week and in the weeks to come is that it wouldn't take you 20 years to learn this lesson and to internalize it, but it could be true for you even now. Let's keep this in mind as we stand and sing one final song together.